out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be an author who's just written and published a book. Her name is Professor Kristen Feldman Barrett, whose book is titled A Women's History of the Beatles. This has come out, um, I'll tell you who the publisher is, it's Bloomsbury Academic USA. Anyway, just, just Google Um, A Women's History of the Beatles and Christine uh, Feldman Barrett, and you will strike gold. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the reasons for this book. Christine, it's over to you. I mean, sometimes I will tell people that this book is a lifetime in the making, in the sense that I've been a Beatles fan since I was a little girl. My sister and I were fans early on and we're both born, you know, my sister was born in the mid sixties, I'm born in the early seventies. So we're certainly second generation fans of the group. And we found ways to always sort of bring Beatles fandom into our lives. And so that's always been there. But then when I was doing my PhD, that interest in the 60s came back in an academic way, obviously. And then I worked on my PhD, which was about mod culture and mod culture's reach globally from Mm -hmm. Britain to places like Japan and Germany and the US. And the Beatles came into it a little bit, especially as I was living in Hamburg for a year. So I got to see the places where the Beatles had played in St. Pauli, the red light district there. And I got to interview some people who had known the Beatles at that time. I was asking them more about that connection between the UK and Germany and youth culture at that time. And how fashion and style and all those things were being translated back and forth. And that the Beatles were in the mix, obviously, in the very early 60s there. And essentially, I guess my feeling about going into writing this book and doing the research for it was that women have been at the heart of the fandom of the Beatles, and not just in the 60s, but going into the second and third generation of the fandom. And even though there have been memoirs written by women who were married to a Beatle or friends with the Beatles and things like that, I felt there was still a kind of narrow view, especially of female fans within the Beatles story. And also there wasn't really anything written about all the musicians, women in bands in the 60s, not just later on, but even in 1964-65, these all-girl garage rock bands who formed because of the Beatles. And I thought that story hadn't really been told yet either. So with this book, I wanted to, I think, just broaden the history and give more voice to women who had been really involved in connecting with the Beatles in all these wonderful ways. And certainly in terms of the wives and girlfriends, I think there were 
narratives there that I wanted to further explore and maybe overturn a bit in terms of, again, the narrow view or perhaps not very positive view of some of the women involved in that part of the story. So, yes. yeah. Well, it's quite an interesting one. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? Um, because obviously, well, it's a very interesting time in your book, isn't it? Because there's the the Me Too generation and sort of movement that's happened. And I think a lot of people have have sort of, like I mentioned previously, there was a book that came out by um, Virginia Nicholson, How Was It For You?, which was about women in the 60s. And because it's always, because when I was growing up, um, I was born sort of in, I suppose, the mid 60s, you know, everything looked so rosy and everything was beautiful. And then people start have started pulling it apart a bit and narratives and stories come out. And a few people have said, well, actually, it wasn't that great for these people and those people. And, you know, and it's kind of interesting because when I was growing up, when musicians were asked why they got into music, they used to just say, you know, it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. Obviously, that's now being told, they've been told to stop saying that because the world of the groupie was kind of all you heard about, really, with most women. And there weren't that many. There were a few in bands, but, you know, again, it was very much a bit part, wasn't it? So, so with the Beatles and going back to this period, the wives often and the girlfriends get kind of a bad deal already, don't they? At the, at the yeah, well, a few of them, a few of them, <clears throat> excuse me, a few of them definitely do at the time. And, you know, we can talk about Yoko Ono, we can talk about Linda Eastman coming into the Beatles story at the very end of the band's career. Yes. And they certainly are not given the same uh, warm welcome, let's say, into the Beatles story as someone like Jane Asher received, as someone like Cynthia Powell uh, received, uh, Maureen Cox, who married Ringo Starr. And there, there are different, and Patty Boyd, of course, married George Harrison. So the way that I approached writing about them in the book was to talk about how the Beatles story really became this fairy tale of the 60s and continues to be celebrated as this epic story, obviously, this amazing story. And that's why there are thousands of books literally written about the Beatles. But I, I wanted to think about the women in the story as, uh, you know, if the Beatles were seen as this kind of Prince Charming archetype, these mod Prince Charmings, and they were also seen as these kinds of cinder lads, because the, the story that was always trotted out, especially in the American press, was that they came from very humble working class origins. And even though since then, obviously that story has become more nuanced, but that was the story then. And so it was a rags to riches story. They were uh, musical royalty, if you will, princes of pop. And so all the women who came into the story obviously were highly scrutinized. And by the time we get to the late 60s with Linda Eastman and Yoko Ono, there's a certain expectation from the public and the media in terms of who these women should be. They should yes. be glamorous, they should be movie stars or models, and certainly they can't be an avant-garde artist or a, a divorced American photographer who isn't into wearing makeup and is more of a hippie chick as she 
sometimes did describe herself later. So, yes. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so I think there are many different ways that the Beatles story has been told or the women have been talked about, but that was my way to approach it also because there was a lot of interesting writing that came out in the early 70s, just after the Beatles broke up, where feminist literary critics were deconstructing fairy tales, you know, and looking at how they were not only tools for socialization, but were potentially maybe not harmful, but they were uh, making women believe that they could only be happy if this, this, and this happened. You know, if they married the prince, that yes. was the ultimate goal. So I thought it was interesting to map that kind of literature and those studies onto what was happening in the 60s. And the Beatles story is certainly, as I said, it's been presented as this epic tale, as this fairy tale of sorts. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was a good way to approach it. Yes, very good. Because obviously in the 70s, I say obviously, it might not be in the 70s, but there was the Stepford Wives, the film that came out, which was quite a heavy number, wasn't it? About sort of going back to really having seen that probably women and feminism was kind of rising quite a lot in the 60s and a lot of people were starting to want to question things and actually have more sort of equal rights and equal pay and everything like that. How dare they? Um, you know, there was this kind of movement back to the 50s, wasn't it? Like, oh, wait a minute, let's let's not get carried away here. So I think with the Beatles, when, you know, they started getting relationships, there was a, a huge amount of judgment and obviously the Yoko character and also Linda to a degree. But one of the main kind of women in the sort of the Beatles stories that seems to have shaped at least one of the members and, and obviously kind of the relationship that he had with his himself as well as everybody else is kind of John and his mother being killed and that was quite and then him growing up with his grandmother but obviously you don't see something like that happen and, and not be completely damaged for the rest of your life really or struggle with it as as highlighted on one of his solo albums Mother which was horrendously mm. tear-jerking. So that that was kind of you know that kind of shapes a lot of the, the Beatles stories because John's always had that quality of from people who knew him of being quite vicious at times, which is only understandable because, you know, you're going to have a little bit of an edge to yourself, aren't you, if you've seen your mother get killed on a crash? Yeah, I think one aspect of his relationship with his mother, though, that is not talked about hardly at all, but I think is a really cool aspect to his relationship with her, is that she actually taught him chords on the banjo, which he then transposed onto the guitar. So I see her a bit like his first musical mentor, really, because she was into rock and roll. By all accounts, she was very fun loving and very youthful. And I love that she encouraged his interest in music to the point where she really sat him down and said, okay, I don't have a guitar, but here's the banjo and let me show you how you can start playing. And then when he did form the Quarrymen pre-Beatles, they would often practice at her place rather than his auntie's place where he was uh, living full time. Yeah. And so I think even though, of course, it is a tragic story that he loses his mother so soon after they've reconnected when he's a teenager, 
um, I, I like that piece of the story that she was very encouraging of him to pursue music and to see it as something truly important in his life. So that's an, a value, invaluable gift that she gave him. Yes, well, absolutely. And obviously, you know, it, I, I could imagine, you know, it's always difficult, but when he sees Yoko, and this is at one of those galleries, isn't it, which I think, is it Barry Miles? He's part of that kind of London underground scene that had sort of, I think, Indica, Indica. Indica, yeah. yeah the gallery. And then he'd also been working on International Times. And then they put that event together in 1967 at the Ali Pali, sort of, I think it was June time, the 14-hour Technicolor dream where Yoko is there and she's doing one of her art pieces. And I think John's also there from that little bit of film. I mean, it's kind of yeah. interesting how quickly the Beatles had changed from that sort of early 60s, within a, not even a decade, had already started to explore so many other different avenues. And it's kind of interesting that Yoko kind of strikes such a curiosity for, for him. And also Paul was another person who was actually more interested in the sort of mm. the avant-garde than, than John was. But again, you know, it was just the, the way that the Beatles did changed so much and the decade changed and, and I always remember that Philip Larkin poem which starts you know the 60s started in 63 with you know Lady Chatterley's Lover and the first Beatles album which I always thought was quite nice because decades don't really fit perfectly do they they often sort of have a bit of a, a slow start and they go into the next decade so that was quite interesting and and though there had been Elvis they, you know the Beatles and then the Stones obviously were the ones who created these fandoms so when you were doing your book did you analyze much about the the emotional impact that this the, the band and the musicians have on on people's lives well I was of course focusing on women's experiences so the women who I interviewed who were fans either in the 60s or beyond, I was interested in how young they were when they had that first encounter with the Beatles, that fateful moment that in many ways shaped their lives to different degrees. But I, I think what I wanted to bring out was the diversity of the experiences. So when we think of Beatlemaniacs, for instance, we can't get away from the images of the screaming, fainting girls, the yeah. girls that are going um, just hysterical. But again, those words, maniac, hysterical, being slapped onto adolescent girls, young women, it is problematic, isn't it? Because then I think what happened at the time with the media coverage of those fans, it, it sort of took away any other deep or any potential for deep inquiry into, as you said, more of the deeper emotional or cultural impact that the Beatles had on these girls, on these young women. But the funny thing is, David, that if you actually look at a lot of the interviews at the time, even in mainstream media, where these obviously adult male reporters are asking these adolescent girls to tell them why the Beatles are so meaningful to them, they will actually say, and they will talk about the things they're doing with their friends, the fan clubs they're forming, the school dances, you know, uh, why they got into different mod fashions and things like that. But all of that is sort of lost or um, even at the time, I think 
people sort of didn't care to hear about that because it was much easier to just categorize and stereotype girls who were beetle maniacs as um, silly. You know, it was easy to sort of patronize them and think that uh, this interest in the Beatles was just frivolous and not in any way meaningful to mm. them. And it clearly was meaningful. And I, and I think that was part of the story that I really wanted to overturn is that, or at least say, look, there was so much more going on uh, behind that wall of sound, if you will, all those screams, you know, there were all these stories of girls becoming really invested in things like art and music, becoming musicians uh, because of the Beatles, even at 15, 16 years old, things like that. So I think um, for whatever reason, and I mean, there are many reasons we could talk about in terms of why this sort of stuff wasn't really a focus for say the history of rock that's right. been written so far. And I mean, we can talk about that later if you would like to, but I just think, um, yeah, it was easy just to have this sort of shorthand of what was happening and saying it was just hysterical affect. It was just um, this silly adolescent response to these four good-looking guys, you know, but you, there was so much on, more. On that fandom, do you think it, that, that people look at it differently if it was the, the, the boys or young men? to the girls and young women, you know, do because I suppose when you were talking about that, I just, you know, I was thinking, well, I suppose my first love was David Bowie, you know, seeing him on top of the pops and stuff. And so yeah. I, that was my first single. On, and then, you know, he kind of just stayed with me all my life. Now it was very yes. lucky because it could have been someone else like Gary Glitter, but it wasn't, thank God. So, yeah. so, so <laughs> but interesting enough, it was like, um, you know, when you're young, you see the watching something, you think, wow, that looks amazing. And you get drawn to yeah. it. You don't understand why, because you're about 10 or 11. Um, and then, you know, some of, you know, you sometimes lock out and you think, well, wow, that's great because, you know, then that person stays with you for the rest of your life. And, and interesting enough, it's in, you know, like you'd hear someone's, you know, he would say something like, oh, I like this record or I like this book or I like this, you know, film. And I would go, oh, OK, I better go and check it out then. I sort of, you're vaguely in a cult by then, aren't you? Um, but it's all yeah. right. It's, it's, it's OK. But I just wondered if there's a, a gender imbalance with, with whether it's, you know, a young woman or a young boy, you know, whether you know, it's reported differently or sort of the stories told differently. I do think those stories generally have been told differently. And with the Beatles, it's the reason why I think it was so interesting to delve into this gendered angle uh, with the Beatles is because with their career as a band, you see, as you mentioned before, they really change in all different ways, musically, stylistically, um, the way they're engaging with their fans, engaging with the press, it really changes over that relatively short time span. And um, with the Beatles, we see this transformation from what today would be called a boy band. And I really mm. actually bristle a little bit when people call the Beatles the first boy band, because I think that's problematic. I don't you know, see the Beatles as being the same as uh, One Direction or Take That or something because they were, you know, composed, they were composers, they were songwriters, and they were also a serious rock band from the start, 
from their Liverpool days before mm. Beatlemania and everything. But what we see with the Beatles, I guess I'm just using that as a, as a shorthand at the moment, but we see them be a band that is ostensibly a pop rock act. Uh, they're, they're attracting a huge female audience. The women are really dominant. Uh, in the early years especially. And then what we see around the time of 1967 with their move into psychedelia and Sgt. Pepper being praised as this amazing visionary piece of art, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, and then we also see the rise of rock journalism, which even though in the early days, a lot of the reporters covering the Beatles, especially in the UK, were young women, like Maureen Cleave, Don James, people like that, we see this whole new coterie of male rock journalists who are being very, very earnest about their, their engagement with the Beatles and a way for them, I think, to, to emphasize their seriousness is to kind of put down the Beatlemania period and to sort of shove women's involvement to the side. And I think that's why the Beatles story in terms of boy fans, girl fans, or young men, young women interested in the Beatles, it's kind of divided up in these two halves, these two stories from the early years of the Beatles to the, the latter years. But the truth is that the women were always there through psychedelia, through to the very end of the band's career. Women fans were always there, but like I said, their, um, their appearance in biographies, previous biographies or histories about the Beatles, that seems to get played down or not talked about at all, you know, when we get into like 67, 68. It's interesting, yeah, it's interesting because there was the Rolling Stone magazine that came out with Jan, Jan Bremer, then, then, mm -hmm. yes, Jan and then there was the, there was the, <laughs> The, the kind of more teen magazines, which are much more about photographs and just very simple questions about, you know, what's your star sign, what's your favourite colour, what's your favourite food, isn't there? And I remember there was a sort of that famous, well, not famous, but, you know, Danny Fields, he's kind of working for one of those teen magazines. And yes. he was the one who pulled that quote, you know, that the Beatles were going to be bigger than Jesus. And that kind of creates this huge amount of problems. But it's it's an interesting gender divide about how you know, what you were saying there about, about how quickly it's like the boys get, you know, like we've got the serious magazines and you can have the sort of fluffy stuff with the nice, you know, you can cut your magazines up and put them on the wall, but these are going to be arty pieces written by the almost gonzo journalists, but I don't know if that had even been invented by then. So it's, yeah, it's it's an interesting one how quickly the, the, the gender thing kind of gets set so quick yes in, in such a short period of time and and sort of ownership really isn't there you know mm -hmm. and also at this but then at the same time you had those people that were coming through like Scylla Black was beginning to you know she was part of that Liverpool scene and we she was becoming a singer and an artist herself and one of her great songs that I thought was amazing from the tv series called Scylla was Step Inside Love now I didn't realize it was written by John and Paul at that time, but it, it's just one of those great songs. So there was obviously a lot of people who, you know, there was so much change in the 60s, but there was a lot of people who were also, you know, like benefiting, but it, it was still a bit of a boys club, wasn't it really? Well, I think one of the things for me that's always resonated about the Beatles and 
the Beatles not only as a collective, but as four individuals, is that the way they came across, and I think the reason why women always felt quite connected to what they were doing, even in the early years, is there was this aspect to them, either lyrically in their songs, or just in their demeanor, you know, being quite charming and charismatic, but also very, very friendly, by and large, to most everyone, and especially the girl fans that flocked around them, starting in those early days at the Cavern in Liverpool. But um, they, I think, were very, you know, in terms of Scylla Black, there was this yeah, there was this way that they really connected. There was a friendliness that came across that you see uh, in the way that they were willing to work with um, different performers and that Paul McCartney often thought about women singers performing his songs. Marianne Faithful recorded yesterday, not long after the Beatles did. Yeah. And McCartney has said that he imagined when he heard the lyrics in his head, he could imagine Marianne Faithful singing that song. And later it was the same with Let It Be. He imagined Aretha Franklin singing that and she recorded it as well. So I think the Beatles are very sort of pro-girl, pro-woman actually, in a way that say the Rolling Stones weren't. And aren't, I would say. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you can see it really clearly, especially in the lyrics to their songs in the 1960s. And this is nothing about them in terms of the Rolling Stones. You know, I haven't researched their stories, so it's nothing to do with, you know, Mick and Keith and, and whatever they're doing. But in terms of my research of Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John Lennon, uh, Ringo Starr, even Pete Best in the early days, just their interaction with their female fans was always uh, very friendly and cordial. And I think that spilled over into what became their international image, obviously. And it also spilled over into how they interacted with other um, performers, female performers. You were saying it was a boys club and that's true in terms of uh, the gatekeeping, I would say, around female rock bands, because mm. there were female rock bands at the time, but they weren't written about. They didn't get really a lot of um, contracts with record labels, whereas obviously women like Scylla Black, Marianne Faithful, Sandy Shaw, you know, all of them were in the spotlight for sure. Yes. Yes, there was an amazing bass player called Carol Kay, wasn't there, who I think yeah. guested on about a thousand different recordings, including the Beach Boys. She was just extraordinary. So I think a lot of the women just had to sort of, you know, there was a film, wasn't there, 20 Feet from the Mic or No, or something about the backing singer. You know, there was, there often it's like you can sing in the back, but you can't be at the front. But it was interesting you mentioned the, the Ronan Stones because it is kind of this yin-yang stuff, isn't there? There was the, the Beatles that obviously had this bit of an image and, you know, Brian Epstein and, and that kind of, that world of the public school um, sort of manager. And then there was kind of 
you, you wouldn't want your daughters to go home with the Ronan Stones, which was kind of like, wow, that's quite hard. And the 60s was quite an interesting <laughs> period because it was, you know, it started with that slight optimism, though no one knew where it was going to go. But it ends with kind of, you know, Charles Manson, Altamont, you know, the death of, you know, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison. And, as you know, and there, there is this thing of wanting to, in the end, to sort of destroy, isn't there? And and to yeah i mean it's a very it's a very destructive kind of world for what you know entertainment at the best of times and most people do get chewed up like you mentioned marianne faithful i mean she she ends up with a phenomenal amount of problems living almost on the streets if not on, in a car anyway um so yeah i mean so, so when you were talking to you know with, with a lot of the fans how did they cope with that moment when the beatles are no longer the beatles and they've also got to an age where their lives have changed and things are moving on. I just was kind of curious what you, what you found with your research on that. Well, it's interesting, you know, we didn't talk about that very much, to be honest, in the interviews. I, you know, the, the research really bears out though, that certainly when the Beatles break up in 1970, that, you know, it's it's such a horrible event for, for all fans, male and female. And the Beatles still retain a major uh, space in people's lives. So the female fans who I talked to from the first generation who were Beatle maniacs or who became fans in the 60s, as they grow up, as they get married, have kids and so on, they maybe pull away from the Beatles a little bit, but then always come back to the Beatles. So even after the Beatles have broken up, there's still such a presence in these women's lives. So that's why I ended up interviewing the women I did because the Beatles are still with them, if you know what I'm saying. There's still that presence of the music, of that feeling of connection with the personalities of the band and the whole story, the whole history of the Beatles. It's something that these women um, cherish. It's not something that was a phase that they left behind, for instance, when the Beatles broke up. And that was also an important aspect of the story for me to write this history is to talk about how the Beatles, unlike maybe a lot of other bands, we know that their story endures and they continue to be popular, that whenever the last few times Paul McCartney has gone on tour, he's, he's still selling out arenas mm. and you see three generations of, of people in his audience. So it's it's not as if the Beatles have really gone away. So the women I interviewed, yeah, the Beatles are still a source of joy, a source of comfort, a little bit of nostalgia for different you know aspects of their life of their lives. And it's interesting too to think about then the fans that came after, who became fans in the 1970s or later. And I'm certainly one of those people. And I interviewed a lot of women uh, slightly older than me, say born in the early 60s, perhaps. And then the youngest person I interviewed, she was born in 1996. So <laughs> it's, it's a pretty, you know, ongoing fandom, if you like. It's still, the Beatles still resonate with 
for instance, girls who are 19, 20 years old now. There's some right. podcasters out there at the moment doing Beatles podcasts who are in their 20s, you know, early 20s. So, yes, it's well, I get, I, I, it is a, it's a curious story, but I did an interview with the, the journalist called Nick, um, Nick Kent recently. He's just brought a book out and he's, you know, written from the sort of 70s, but he said his career started in 73. And it's that thing about, you know, if you're in that world, you have to kind of be on the zeitgeist, you know, so punk was about to appear. But he said that everybody mm-hmm. on the paper and on this magazine that he was going to be writing for, they were wait, they were sort of, they'd been around for a few years in, you know, from the mm-hmm. late 60s. And they were still waiting for the Beatles to reform, which I thought was quite a boggling <laughs> idea. And, but it was yeah. 73, so there was all that potential. And so those guys yeah. were already out of touch because it's like, no, they're not going to reform. And if they do, who cares? You know, punk, punk is appearing. And they were like, no, we, we don't, that, that's not real music. So it's kind of interesting how people quickly get stuck into stuff. And, and it's kind of interesting how, you know, this love affair of a band, because luckily, as I mentioned about David Bowie, you know, he kind of yeah. just was this person who went through my life. But then in the 80s, I was obsessed with this band called The Smiths, who lasted five years, and they had this very intense time. And when they broke up, there was a kind of a, for me, an emotional kind of divorce almost. You know, I kind of couldn't play their records for a while. And it took a while, you know, a period of time to sort of come back because it was almost a bit too obsessive, you know. And I just wondered, you know, did you find that some of the people you spoke to when they broke up almost, you know, a bit like one of those biblical stories of trying to deny that you knew Jesus Christ? I can't quite remember the whole narrative of that story, by the way. But you almost get, oh, no, I didn't really like the Smiths. I did. And then you go, well, I did. I was really obsessed with them. But it was almost one of those experiences that you kind of not became a cult member and brainwashed, but it almost felt like a relief when you could have a break from them. I just wondered if you'd found any of those kind of people who had experiences a bit like that. Not really. I mean... I think about some of the first generation women who I interviewed who talked about how their love of the Beatles artistry and their creativity and all those things they had loved about the Beatles spilled over into the work that they were doing. So for example, one woman, she became a fashion designer and uh, was doing costuming for theater for a while. And so all of that sort of energy that the Beatles had inspired in her went into what she was doing, say, in the by the early 70s, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's those sorts of narratives and the energy and the dynamism, if you will, behind the Beatles just reverberated for these women, even after the band had broken up. Now, I did hear from a later generation fan, someone who's born in the mid 80s, so didn't really come to the Beatles until the early 2000s. And she said that she had to actually take a break from her Beatles, you know, obsession or listening to the Beatles all the time, she had to take a bit of a break. So that was a narrative like that, but it didn't have to do with the breakup per se. Right, that's quite different, really. But then, you know, as you, you sort of earlier said about them still being with us, because there's always repackaged and new albums and new films somehow being made. And also Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas has got this 
certainly did anyway, you know, the, the production of love. So there is always, you know, like generations of people and the story is being told and it gets slightly changed. And then there's this amazing soundtrack and, and you, know, the, you know, some of the songs get slightly remixed. But, you, you know, because you, you know, I've seen the show, you can just see it just keeps it kind of going on and on forever. And it's become... You know, when people write about the history of, you know, popular music, I mean, you think it was going to be really big, but, you know, they all just be like, well, there was Elvis, little, possibly with little Richard, who should be mentioned. And then there's the Beatles. And, and really, the rest is just kind of being re, reinvented, isn't it? You know, onwards. If anybody's, you know, a guitar rock band or pop band, you know, it's basically the Beatles or some, some variation. But they, you don't, we're not going to have to write a huge chapter about this sort of popular music, are we? You know, it's just literally the Beatles. And, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it, it's just going to sit there. I mean, because you don't need to worry about the, you know, Sex Pistols because it's like, well, that, you know, for me, they just sound like the monkeys, you know, with a bit of, you know. <laughs> volume really that is a man they are a manufactured band aren't they well so were the sex pistols as well actually so anyway um I'm off the track. But yeah, so the being, being reinvented all the time and people fall, falling in love. And also we love nostalgia, don't we? There's a safety mm -hmm. because we've got the story and it's being nicely told. And if there's any bits that aren't quite nice, we sort of push them to one side if we can. So yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting how, how, how it's being told, but it's interesting that you've, you've picked up on this kind of part of the story, which is also very interesting. Uh, thank you. And I was just thinking as you were talking about the Smiths, because I I really loved the Smiths uh, when I was a teenager. And um, what what happened for me is that the Beatles always were there. But then I sort of sought out these bands that had this Beatlesque quality or had some sort of 60s quality to them. And of course, we see that in both male bands, power pop bands, pop rock bands, whatever you want to call them, and also um, bands like the Bangles, especially their early sound uh, mm. when they were still called the Bangs, was very Beatlesque. And Susanna Hoffs and the other members of the band have talked many times about how they got together because they wanted to be the Beatles, essentially. They wanted to be this all-girl Beatlesque band. And so there's always been that thread of the Beatles through, and I think we can recognize them in these different performers, but especially rock bands that have appeared. And, you know, I don't need to talk about Britpop to you because <laughs> there's, there's obviously so much of the Beatles and the Kinks and the small faces in, in the bands that emerged at that time. But, yeah, I think uh, even in punk, I wanted to say it was so interesting for me to look at how a lot of, especially female punks, would talk about the Beatles having been important to them when they were children. And that had kind of inspired them to seek music out and want to be involved with music. Of course, by the time they're teenagers, punk is the thing. So yes. they become involved with that. Well, I suppose it's interesting because Glenn Matlock, who was the bass player of the Sex Pistols, who, you know, you know, co-wrote all those songs, Sid Vicious didn't write anything. Um, you know, he, his big influence was the Beatles, you know, so he's always mentioned that. And Johnny 
lied and rotten obviously has to get uptight and upset about it as Johnny would so um yes but it's like well they're still well-crafted songs aren't they you know let's face it yeah. there's nothing there's nothing unusual about that you don't really need to write a chapter in the history of music about the Sex Pistols because it's like well you just you know they've just copied the Beatles who vaguely copied other people but you know I mean there is nothing that yes they, they are kind of ground zero almost aren't they you know without mm -hmm. sort of you know, with, with acknowledging the jazz and blues world as well and, and Motown. Oh, that obviously, you know, the Beatles were very keen on because of that whole world of Liverpool and sort of, you know, getting a lot of these imported records. So it is interesting. But it was it, just last night, I mean, it was interesting you mentioned about the gatekeepers because they are quite important. And, and you know, in, in the 60s, you had the DJs, you know, on pirate radio, and then you had the music papers, the serious ones, and television was, you know, it was so you know, quickly put into, you know, again, it's almost like the Stepford Wives. It's like, you know, you can have the co-host and you might be able to sit in the background, you know, with the typewriter, but, you know, you can't, I'm not sure if you can walk or t walk and talk, can you, let's face it. But, um, yeah, so it, it is interesting how, how society kind of always kicks back a bit, really. So it's it's interesting in the last five years, the, the Me Too generation and, and movement has, has started to be sort of given a lot more momentum. And, and you know, I suppose stories have come out a lot more. I mean, there was that um, other band, The Go-Go's, there was a film about them. Yeah. You know, one of the members mentioned that she'd been raped by Kim Fowley and, and all that, which is like, oh, my God, it's so grubby. It's terrible. And it's a bit like, you know, there's all these stories that start to appear and you think, OK, that's not good, is it really? So I suppose it's, it, you know, like your book, you know, you, you bring the, the narrative up to date and just, yes, shining the light in some of the, the slightly dirt, murky corners of society. Well, I mean, fortunately, the, the women who I spoke to who were in the all-girl rock bands in the mid-60s, and there was one that actually inspired me in a way to write this book as well. I don't know if you remember hearing about the Liverbirds, but they were from Liverpool, actually, and they, they formed because they were going to see the Beatles at the Cavern all the time and thought, right, that looks like great fun. We want to do that too. And we're going to do it with our girlfriends. You know, we're going to start a band. And they ended up having an amazing career actually, but based in Hamburg. So they did what, <laughs> what the Beatles had done. They left Liverpool and had uh, these residencies at different clubs in Hamburg and ended up having German management. And they ended up touring all over Europe and they even went to Japan in 1968, right before they broke up. But uh, they were never well known internationally, right? Beyond no. uh, that sort of uh, space in Western Europe. And, and they were better known in continental Europe than they were ever in the UK. And then there are stories like um, the Pleasure Seekers. So that was... Susie Quattro's band, and I actually interviewed her sister, Patty Quattro Erickson, and she told me how their origin story was Patty went to go see the Beatles in Detroit when, when they came to play, and she, was, she had seen them on the Ed Sullivan show already, but she was just amazed at what they were doing and the reaction and, again, kind of mesmerized at the whole experience and thought, yep. 
I'm going to form a band with my friends as well. And it's going to be all girls and let's see what we can do. And there, her story, uh, the story of the Liverbirds, also the story of the nursery rhymes in Sweden. I mean, they only had positive things to say about the actual experience of being in these bands and, mm. and playing. And Patty also told me that the support from the other male musicians in the rock scene uh, that she came across through the years, it was always super positive and they were always thinking it was so cool that these girls were playing in bands. So she said it had nothing to do with the atmosphere, if you like, of, of, of the guys in the bands, that it really had to do with that gatekeeping at the executive level yes. with, with record labels and with people who are making decisions about which bands would get signed and who would be promoted and or yeah promoted and they never seem to think that they could promote an all-female rock band mm -hmm. in the way that they could the female singers it just was inconceivable to them or they thought oh they're just going to quit and get married and have babies you know that's that's the only way this can play out is yes. so they just couldn't understand that maybe these young women wanted to do something different. They wanted to do something more and they were doing it. And why couldn't they? And why shouldn't they be supported? But they just weren't in that, in terms of the, the commercial support. It is interesting. I mean, just kind of a, almost on the last point, because um, obviously in the 70s, we then get the sort of the rise of the singer songwriter like Joni Mitchell and Carole King and mm -hmm. and and you know those people and before that we had sort of grace joan uh, grace slick in the jefferson airplane so it was very much either solo or a female fronted band but then yeah it, it was you know but the, the rise i suppose the 60s you know all women's bands and then in the 70s i mean it was a bit unfortunate because i did an interview with, with the drummer but there was the american band called fanny and i you know and it was like that was not a great name. That just was not going to work very well for the rest of the country, even though it means something quite different in America than it does in, in the UK. So it was yeah. like, <laughs> it was like yeah. why did you not run that by a few other people? But yes, but they had a quite, a, you know, a successful period. But like at the end of the day with that particular band, I just remember her story just saying it was like any band, you know, you, you often have the five years of the honeymoon period, the first album, the tour, and then internal problems within each other so it is interesting but um yeah it's it's a bit of a classic but it's great that you know those bands that you mentioned in the 60s generally had a very successful time and as you said it was mostly the the industry industry around it you know that was um more difficult than the the community themselves but yes that's cool anyway look i better let you get on but this has been great well thank you ever so much for this and if you want i can send you a link and then you can always use it elsewhere and um yes that'd be okay. brilliant well it's been lovely meeting you david great talking with you and thanks for inviting me on yeah well no this has been brilliant well thank you Akena. um and i'll hit i'll hit the save button but look thanks and have a great evening yes you too have a good day you too bye-bye bye bye there you go. That's how you say goodbye in a very cool and groovy way. Or not. Anyway, look, this or has been David Eastor. A big thank you to Professor Christine Feldman Barrett, whose book 
A Women's History of the Beatles is now available from all good bookshops. You probably need to order it. And also online. What not to like. Anyway, a big thank you for that. If you want to contact me for some exciting but random reason, but make it nice in this time, in this day and age, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Also, all these interviews have been archived and podcasts, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.